You are now listening to the First Baptist Church of America's podcast. If you have any questions about our church, please check us out online at fbcamericas.org. This week we are hosting the Experience Israel Now conference. We are taking an in-depth look at the geography of the land where the stories of the Bible took place. As we know, most biblical accounts contain geographical reference points, and we believe that in studying these, we can gain a better understanding to the accounts that we read about. Let's listen in and see what Brother Andy has for us in this first session of the Experience Israel Now conference. Thank you, Keith. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I'm glad you're here, and I am especially glad to be here because when he said I wasn't able to come last year, uh, I, I wasn't able to go anywhere in, in August last year. I, my back went completely kaput. I mean, I'd had trouble with it since, uh, uh, the, the, since I can't remember when I didn't have trouble with it. But I wound up having back surgery in, in October, went through rehab. I am so glad to be pain-free today and standing up and back in America. We're going to have a great time uh, together today. Um, hey, we, we have a special resource for you. It's a 36-page study guide that um, is just for you. Uh, it says experienceisraelnow.com backslash Americas. Can you remember that? I think you can. All right, now here's what it is. You can take this resource guide. This is, this is a scaled-down version of what I give our travelers when we actually go to Israel. It's just background material on some of the stuff that I'll be teaching uh, this week. And some of you are really going to get into this. Now, you can take this, download it from the Internet, put it on your phone, put it on your electronic tablet like an iPad, or you can print it out if you want to and make a little notebook and take some notes. A lot of people do it that way. Now, if you're saying, I don't know how to download stuff and put it on my phone, there's somebody near you under the age of 10 who does know how to do that. <laughs> and so get some help. I mean, that's, that's why my wife and I have grandchildren. We, we, we would like to know how to run our remote control one day. So... Uh, it just, I hope you'll take advantage of this resource. It's, a, it's a kind of a one-of-a-kind, and it goes hand-in-hand hand with all the lessons we're going to do. Uh, experiencesisraelnow.com backslash Americas. Americas. So let me see. There we go. Thank you. Now, here's what we're going to do uh, this week. Uh, tonight, we're going to do, we're going to go to the valley where David defeated Goliath. And no kidding, it's really the valley. The Bible tells us that. But this actually is a phenomenal lesson on dealing with anxiety and stress. David may not have been that frightened when he defeated Goliath. No kidding. He may not have been all that frightened. I mean, he was 15 or so. I mean, he doesn't know enough to be frightened. But the next time he comes into this valley, he admits he's terrified. And how he overcame that terror, that personal internal stress, to become the greatest king in Israel's history, and it's why some of you have named your sons David uh, all 3,000 years later, such a good name, uh, well, we can pick up clues on that. So that's tonight. Tomorrow night, and I like to call all of my lessons Secrets from the Ancient Past. We've written some books called Secrets from the Ancient Past and, and still writing those. They're not, they're not really secrets. If you live in Israel or travel there enough, they're in plain sight, secrets hidden in plain sight. But we don't grow up in Israel. You know, if I were to write another novel about a, about a, a boy growing up in his childhood, I'd probably use the streets of America as my is my setting because I'm so familiar with that. But the people in the Bible wrote about their backyard. And so here's, here's what the, tomorrow's night's lesson is about. It's a little different. It's about what the land of the Bible has to share with us about the future. I mean, it's, it's gonna, we're going to go to Armageddon, the Valley of Armageddon, and we, uh, we'll go to, to Jerusalem, and we're going to talk about some of the end-time prophecies and see what the land can offer us. On Monday night... Uh, we, oh, that's Monday night. On Tuesday night, we will do 
what I like to say is my favorite um, presentation, the stone the builders rejected. We're going to the cross. It's the most powerful presentation of the week. It's an incredible look at the week, of, the last week of the life of Jesus. I'm saying that in case you have somebody you want to bring, uh, kind of target out what we're going to do. Um, and then Wednesday night, we're going to look at the forgotten chapter of the resurrection, go to the Sea of Galilee, um, and I'm telling you, this is where grace really comes home for people like me and probably people like you. Um, this, I, I hope you can make all the sessions, 6.30 each evening. Um, but tonight, uh, right now, uh, let's go to the gates of Hades. So we're going to, you know, Jesus said, on this rock, I'll build my church in the gates of Hades. Some people, some translations say the gates of hell will not prevail against. Are you familiar with this passage? You can talk to me if you want to, okay? Just, just let me know that you're here. Um, it's in Matthew chapter 16. We'll be there in a few minutes, but we're going to set it up first because, again, the land has lessons to teach us. Now, so how cool is this? You can go home and, and call your friends or, or send them a text and say, we were at First Baptist America this morning. We went to the gates of hell. You don't get to say that every Sunday. Although your friend may text back and say, what, was Brother Keith preaching again? Yeah, so I don't know. <laughs> Uh, no, here, here's what we're going to do. We, we'll, we'll, we need to get over there. So we will always fly from this location, which is just as real as any of the locations I'm going to take you to. And I'd like you to kind of follow up on the children's sermon. I'd like you to notice how much water we have. We never worry about water, even when they tell us we're in a drought. We just don't worry about it. We, we play in the water. You get to the Middle East, the one thing they don't have, they may have a lot of oil, they don't have a lot of water. But Israel does. Israel's just green enough to support a people living there. And today the population is more than 9 million. When Jesus was alive, it was 2 million. Um, this, this became the international highway between Egypt and North Africa and the whole Persian Empire and the Babylonian Empire over in what we call Asia, that continent. And of course, uh, if you've got to move it by land, if you've got caravans moving produce by land, then it would also connect with Europe. Uh, this is the land bridge between the whole world of that day. Uh, instead, of the, instead of the story of the Bible happening in the middle of nowhere, this is actually the crossroads of the entire world, and anything that happens in this story in, in this land is going to be known all over the world in a short period of time. So we're going to be looking for water today. Israel is very small. Five of them would fit side by side in the state of Georgia. It's also about as tall as Georgia, so therefore, you can kind of get an image of it. It's why we can tour Israel uh, in such a short period of time. We can, we can kind of see the whole thing, it, it, at least get a nice introduction to it. It's the most revisited place um, in the world, by the way. From, and tourism's a huge industry there. Um, we've had some, uh, I know Keith and Judy went with me. Dr. Mays went with me one time. We've got some more travelers from this church going in May. I've got a, a hiking trip that's coming up. In late May, if you really want some adventure, we're going to get out and, and you know, go swimming at En Gedi, and, and it's really quite an adventure. We take a lot of students, but we also take some grandparents. I'm a grandfather. Uh, it, you know, so if you're up for the adventure, that's next, next late May, and talk to me. Uh, is it safe to go to Israel? Got to go through Macon. <laughs> I usually relax after we get through making, so um, brought everybody back so far. Um, now, we're going to go up to the Sea of Galilee. You know, Jesus lived up here, and, and the, uh, he lived in the Galilee, and he grew up in Nazareth. They got, 
they, they decided they didn't really want what he was doing, and so he moved over to Capernaum. Now, here's the thing about Capernaum. Capernaum's on the northern shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, and when you look at the northern shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, you're looking at the Bible Belt of the Galilee. You should recognize Magdala, Mary Magdalene, Capernaum where Jesus lived, Bethsaida, Simon and Andrew, born here, so was uh, Thomas, I believe, Chorazin, uh, maybe it's Philip, uh, Chorazin, woe to you, Chorazin, that's not your best Chamber of Commerce slogan, but nevertheless, we know about it, and it's right up the hill from Capernaum, and these are the ruins of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum has the largest synagogue ever found in Israel. It's amazing. Largest ever in Israel. It's three times too large. Three times too large for the village that was here. My, my tour guide likes to say about the synagogue at Capernaum being so large, it, it is actually archaeological evidence that Jesus lived. And I don't need that evidence to know that Jesus lived. There's, there's all kinds of evidence to know that Jesus lives. Plus, you know, you have, I know that he lives, he lives within my heart. My dad used to sing that song here, you know. And so, but nevertheless, people were still coming here three centuries later, because this synagogue is actually a fourth century synagogue, but it's built on the foundation of the synagogue Jesus would have known. Earthquake knocked it down in the third century. People were still coming here, wanting to meet someone who knew someone who knew someone who knew someone who knew Jesus. And maybe there's one more miracle left for me. So that's, that's why the synagogue is so big. It's actually evidence that Jesus lived. Now, in the synagogue is also a classroom. And we're going to walk around. This is the classroom right here, the school, community school. And so the yeshiva students would meet here. And they would, they would bring the Torah scroll out somewhere in here. And the Torah scroll, the Hebrew letters, were also had a numerical value. And so the scrolls of the Bible literally were, were the entire textbook for the community. And the leader, you might call him even the rabbi of the community, who would take all of these students through the education, um, had, had, this, had this deal. Uh, he'd bring all the girls and all the boys in for the basic education, learn how to read, learn how to write, learn your history, learn your ethics, and of course learn the, the spiritual lessons of the Bible. And they would do so in the room that was adjoining the place of worship. This was a community center for everything. And people would come here in the morning and they would listen to the scripture being read and they would memorize it because that's the only possible way you could have a personal copy of the scripture is to put it in your head, put it in your heart. And they, they, did, they were people who memorized things. They were brilliant. But they started out in the school. The rabbi, the local rabbi, would take these students up to a certain level. Let's call it the elementary school level. Get everybody educated. And, and then they would send the girls home. We have three daughters. They're all out of the home, uh, raising uh, their own children now. And, and so, and in fact, we have three granddaughters. In fact, I have a girl dog and girl cat, and all the deer in our yard are girls. I, I'm, I'm kind of surrounded by girls. Um, and this is coming from a guy who grew up here with a brother. So um, it's been a wonderful life. This, this, they would send the girls home um, and from, from the school after they basically became literate. Now, they didn't have the opportunities our, our daughters have today to do anything they want. They would go home and learn how to be wives and mothers. They would even send some of the boys home at this point to see if we could salvage something out of them. He's not, he doesn't have any academic future, but let's see, just let him learn his father's trade, whether he was making leather, baking bread, obviously fishing. Uh, it's a fishing town. It's, a, it's right there on the coast. There were all kinds of jobs 
Somehow Matthew became a tax collector here. That was not a popular position. Uh, he's working with the Romans. Uh, probably wasn't even allowed to come to the synagogue. Don't know if he rebelled against his family or if his father was a tax collector, but it, it's interesting Jesus would call him is all I'm saying. But most of the boys would get to go to the next level. Let's call it middle school. And then there'd be another cut and they would send most of those boys home and they would take only a few to that next level of education and then there'd be another cut and they'd send those boys home and maybe one or two from every generation would get a little more education because at that point that brilliant scholar coming up in your community growing nice and tall by this time he's got a chance to become a, a rabbi he's got a chance and he's going to have to leave his community and find a rabbi who will, let him, uh, who will let him follow him. And he'll have to say, Rabbi, may I follow you? And the rabbi will say, certainly, come follow me. And for a few days, they'll walk along and the rabbi will, will ask him questions and, and listen to the questions the student, the potential disciple will respond with because the answers are always in the questions and the way they do things. And they talk back and forth like this for a few days. But more than likely, what's going to happen is the rabbi will send Send him home and say, you're going to be such a blessing to your community. God bless you as you go, but no, you cannot be my disciple. Now, watch how Jesus comes into this community. And he, he goes after people who are fishing. Do you know what that means? Somebody had sent them home. They didn't make the cut. They weren't smart enough, bright enough to be a potential rabbi one day with their own disciples. They were the B team. And the good news here, and, and you know, it's, it's strange. You never know when the key message is going to come across in any audience. But so many times I get through with one of these Monday through Wednesday conferences and we've, God's blessed me so much and been able to speak to just thousands of people in the last three and a half years. And it's been, I'm living the dream doing this. It's amazing how many people say, I needed to know that Jesus uses B-teamers, that Jesus calls people that others thought weren't good enough to be disciples. Listen, I think when, when, the, when the Lord called me, really, even while I was at this church, I think, to be a pastor one day, when, when he put his hand on me to be a pastor and a proclaimer of the word, the angels must have laughed. That's ridiculous. And yet, you know, God does use B-teamers. I'm a B-teamer. Anyway, that's just a cool lesson. So he, he, Jesus is always saying to his, his disciples, come follow me. And so one day, he's, uh, I think he had just fed the, the 5,000 or maybe it was the 4,000. He goes over here near Magdala to Dalmanutha. He gets with, uh, there are a couple of people who meet him. And they, they say, and by the way, here's the Jordan River coming in. The Jordan River comes in to the Sea of Galilee and it exits the Sea of Galilee. That's an important part of geography because we are going to go to the beginning point of the Jordan River. That's where we're headed. So he says, come follow me. And he goes to Dalmanutha. Um, and they come out and they say, Jesus, do a sign for us. We'd like to believe. And it's like, I just fed 5,000 people. I, I had a healing session there. I've been, I've been healing people from the blind. He doesn't say all of this, but you can see the frustration. I've been stopping funerals. I, I stopped a storm out here on the lake. I walked on the water. You want me to do a trick for you? just so you can have a private audience. And he says, come, follow me. And he gets in the boat, and he decides to leave the Bible Belt. He leaves the place where everybody's got a synagogue, and they, they, they get in the boat, and they go back over here to Bethsaida, 
and they start walking. They have to walk by the river. They have to walk close enough to the river that when they need the water, they can get the water and drink the water. It's kind of like your automobile has to be close enough to a fuel station in order to, to keep on its journey. We, we, we only go where the fuel is. They only can go where the water is. They pass Bethsaida. They even go into Bethsaida. He heals a blind man here. Um, this was familiar territory. But Jesus, again, is leaving this Bible Belt community, and he's going to go up to the north. I doubt very seriously he told the disciples where they were going. You know, they're all young. Only one of them was married, Simon. Well, there may have been others married, but the Bible doesn't tell us about anybody but Simon Peter being married. Do you know how we know he was married? Some of you teach Sunday school? Surely you remember. He had a what? He had a mother-in-law. And in ancient times, the only way you could get a mother-in-law was to get married. So that's how we know. So we're, we're going up the Jordan River through the Hula Valley, and we're going to head towards Caesarea Philippi, which is at the base of Mount Hermon, which is the tallest mountain in Israel, 9,000 feet. I mean, it dwarfs all other mountains. Inside that mountain will start the water sources that will become the Jordan River. That's an important part. As they're walking toward that, that location, they pass a place called Amri. This will not show up in your Bible. This is just one of the lessons the land has for us. This is a landmark. Now, it's, it's kind of hard to see with all the lights on, you know, but, um, but here, here is a temple at a place they're calling Amrit. Amrit. And so, what is this place? It was only found in 1999. Only found in 1999. It became kind of known that people were doing some archaeological work here in about 2005, 2007, in that neighborhood. And that's when I first started going up here. It's an amazing site. But what is it? What is it? By the way, most of what's been discovered in Israel has been discovered since 1990. If you ever wonder why you haven't heard a lot of this before, you, I mean... It's, it's, it's coming out of the dirt right now, right in front of us. This is a temple that Herod the Great, Herod the Great of the Christmas story, Herod the Great built to honor Caesar Augustus, his benefactor, as God on earth. Emperor worship became a big deal, first starting with Julius Caesar, and the next emperor in line was Augustus. And then from then on out, all the emperors wanted to be God on earth. They wanted to be the son of the gods. That's what Julius Caesar had said he was. And so what you have here is a very typical uh, Roman emperor temple. I mean, that's, that's what it is. Now think about it. Jesus and the disciples walk right by this place. There will be a time within 100 years, 150 years, when the followers of Jesus will be faced with a question all over southern Europe, in Turkey especially, Greece and Rome also, but maybe even here, be faced with a question. Once a year, you have to bring incense inside this temple and drop it in, and it's really a tax is what it is, but drop it in honor of the emperor who is, who is God, the God-man. And followers of Jesus knew something with a little more pressure than what I hope we know already. If you're going to call somebody Lord, the Son of God, only one person gets that title. And they were forced with a question during different emperors who, some of them were crazy. Some of them were, you know, this was just kind of a curiosity thing for them. But some of them said, if they won't bow down before me, then they can, they can die or be imprisoned. But the funny thing was, the more of those early followers who were willing to die 
to say that Jesus alone is Lord, the more people wanted to join that movement. They want to say, you know, if you've got something you're willing to die for, I want part of that. They were so empty. And they all knew that the emperor was just a man. But there it is. There's the front steps right there. And that's at Amrit. And, it's, and we're only three miles away from the finish line of this journey. By the way, they walked everywhere they went. Probably only took them two days for a, for a bunch of young, healthy, very in shape uh, young adults to, to do this hike. Jesus, you know, his first profession was a carpenter and they worked a lot with stone. He was some kind of physically fit. And all of these young men were, were very young. But they, they got three more miles to go and they're going to get up to Caesarea Philippi and discover why Jesus brought them here. Uh, and they are going to be at the beginning point of the Jordan River. If I can get my slide point to even move anymore. Let me just go with the plan B. There we go. Mount Hermon is, uh, it's got snow on it a lot, and then the snow drips down inside the, the, the mountain, and we know about aquifers. They didn't know a lot about aquifers. They just knew from that mountain sprang a river, and I'm not talking about a thousand tiny creeks forming a hundred larger creeks finally forming a river somewhere. At Caesarea Philippi, the river came right out of that cave. Now, they call it Banyas today, and it's always been called Banyas. It's a derivative of, of the word pan, Panyas, maybe. Um, but an earthquake on New Year's Day in 1837 closed this cave up, and so the water no longer comes rushing out of that cave. You imagine what it looked like when Jesus walks up to this thing. Here's the Jordan River right here. It just sort of now seeps through this rock, but it's still a very wide river right at the beginning. Um, now, there are some things here you're going to come back to in a minute, um, but people, people saw the beginning of this river. Remember, water is life, and this water never stops. If it weren't for the Jordan River, Israel would be a desert. Israel would have no crops. People couldn't live here. The world wouldn't travel here. Um, so it's, it became a place of pagan worship. And you can see the places where they carved into the cliff and, and where they put their gods and they put temples in front of this cliff, in front of those areas. And so you get, you get uh, this is the temple to Pan, right here next to the cave. In front of the cave, and Jesus would have seen this, they put another temple and said, this is for the emperor of Rome. This gift of life coming out of this, this hole that never stops is going to come through the emperor's temple, it's the Roman emperor who gives you life. It's the emperor who gives you, since it never stops, eternal life. It's a twist on what God had given them. And all of those little, you know, the worship of Pan here, just the Pan, the Pan worship was so frightening. Every time you use the word panic or pandemic or pandemonium, you're remembering how people felt about the worship of Pan if they stumbled up on it in the middle of the night it's pitch black dark. There's probably some drums beating, people screaming because something or someone is going to die at the climax of this worship. I mean, the worship of Baal and Asherah was also very important here because they said Baal and you, you would remember Baal and Asherah from the prophet Elijah on top of Mount Carmel doing battle with the false prophets. This came right out of Phoenicia and, and, and the Canaanite religions. And, and they said that the reason everything dies in the winter is that Baal and Asherah went underground to Hades, 
the, the underworld for the winter, and that's where they hibernated. Elijah even kind of, he's trash talking, he said, maybe your God's asleep. He's referring to their belief system. But in order for them to go underground and to come out so there would be spring, it would be nice if they had a door to get to this place, and people called that hole in the ground the gates of Hades. And the first time I was there and a tour guide said that, I went, I'm sorry, what would you say? I mean, I've been to seminary. I've been to good churches. I have never heard this. Came home and did all the research. He was telling us the truth. There's a big sign right up there. Some of those people are reading it by the altar to pan. And it has all this information on it. I'm telling you, the land has secrets, but the secrets are hidden in plain sight. It's just history. But I'm like, well, that makes a difference because the Bible says in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus arrived in the region of Caesarea Philippi. You want to read it? Look in verse 13. When Jesus arrived in the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they replied to him, some say John the Baptist, come back to life. Some say Jeremiah or Elijah or one of the other prophets. But what about you? He asked them. Who do you say that I am? A rabbi likes to use the environment to set up questions like this. And that's exactly what happened here. Is, is he came to the most evil corner of Israel. I, I, I mentioned that children died. Part of the worship of Baal and Asherah after Jezebel got on the scene. She came in from Phoenicia with all their child sacrifice. In, in the Phoenician archaeological work, they have found graves, mass graves of children with, with 5,000 infant skulls. She brought all that into to Israel. I mean, Elijah looks at what's going on, the, the sacrifice of children and sexual immorality just running rampant, people calling what is forbidden in God's word normal and honoring it and all this kind of stuff. And Elijah said, that's enough. God said he'd stop the rain if this happened. And you can't tell by the way you read this if Elijah had some directive from God to call, you know, to call the king on the carpet or if he just looked at the word and took God at his word and said, you know what? It's not going to rain. That's what God's word says. And I'm telling you, until I say so, it's not going to rain. And three and a half years later, he's the most hated man in Israel. He went from being laughed at to being the most hated man in Israel. But there's something about child sacrifice and sexual immorality. When it gets to a certain point, even God says, that's enough. Worries me about this country and more the time we live in. They threw children in the cave one at a time. Blood sacrifice to the bloodlust of the gods. But the weird thing is, if blood appeared in the water, it meant that the child had been rejected and they had to go get another baby. This is the most evil corner in Israel. If, I'm telling you, some of the parents of those disciples would not have signed the permission slip to let them go with Jesus up here on this field trip. This is crazy. And the disciples had to be very, very nervous about being here. But he said, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon steps across the line, the oldest, the loudest, and he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Forget these rock God stuff. This is nonsense. You're the one we've been waiting on. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And then he says, on this rock, 
I will build my church. And what? And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That's, that's pretty crazy to think that there was a place. And it was so evil and Jesus was there. But what does it mean? Well, there's, you, could, you could say it this way. This is, this is what happened. If you, if you grew up Catholic, if you are Catholic, if you have friends that are Catholic, if you just kind of are aware, this is why they have a first pope. I even saw a Super Bowl commercial one year that the Catholics put together. It was a nice commercial. And they quoted this Matthew 16 passage talking about why they have a pope. Now, this, is, this is their interpretation of it. Protestants came along. We would be Protestants and said, no, 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 no. It's that confession of faith. It's Peter saying, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And you know, by the way, you know, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. I'm going to give you a nickname. I'm going to give you a new name, a second name. This was not that uncommon. I'm going to call you the rock. That's what Peter means. Cephas in their language. You know, I'm going to call you the rock. It's a great nickname. Uh, Simon was proud of it. I mean, who wouldn't like the rock if you're a guy? It sounds like a linebacker or a wrestler. You know, and Simon loved that nickname. He, he, a few seconds later, he got another nickname. You remember that one? Get thee behind me, Satan. He didn't want that one anymore. He didn't like that one. Doesn't, doesn't look good on the t-shirt. So anyway, we say it's really important for somebody to, for each person to one time in your life, minimum one time in your life, and really kind of every day to say, Jesus is my Lord. Make that profession of faith. We will have an invitation here in a few seconds. A few minutes. Don't get your hopes up. Minutes. You know, we're, we'll give you an opportunity if you've never professed Christ publicly. That's important. But let the land talk to you for a minute. Because I'm pretty sure what really happened here is that Jesus wanted his movement. The word church there implies a building to our culture. But Jesus was not building a fellowship hall on this rock. What we were doing down there in the Bible Belt, guys, we're going to come up here to this very evil culture, and I want you to do that with every culture that will follow me. I want you to confront your culture that has gone so crazy with a message of hope. Because while they look like they're crazy and they're yelling at you and they, and they don't want anything to do with your churches and whatnot, they are also empty and they would love to know there is hope. So go. Find your mission. I mean, you could work with pro-life ministries. I mean, that's a pretty nice application from this location. You can work with addiction recovery. Um, You've you got to find your thing. I was talking to some students on Friday, and I was talking to them about what is it you, you know, that is your passion? What's your passion? Because if you ever wake up at 3 in the morning and, and say, no, you cannot get up this early, you must sleep another hour. Must sleep two more hours to get your rest. You know, if you ever talk about your job as what you get to do today instead of what you have to do today, you've found what God created you for. Now this happens to be mine. What's yours? It's never too late to find it. Never too late to even find the new one. But I'm telling you, this message of hope that we have has to be communicated to our culture. And I don't know if you've noticed, but they are not coming in here at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. We are going to have to go to them outside the walls of this church. Then they may come here. Maybe that's how you got here in the first place. Somebody came to you. It's really the only way it works. The world is still waiting. All out here 
for a message of hope. Well, let me, let me, let me bring this message to a close. I, I can't wait to share some more with you tonight and, and Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. And I hope you can come. It's going to be a lot of fun. I hope you bring people. Maybe you know people. Um, you know, you've got family members that attend other churches or something that are really into the Bible discovery. Call them. Let them know what's going on. Um, we'll, we'll, um, we'll tell better jokes, okay, for them. This water coming out of the gates of Hades goes all the way down to the Sea of Galilee and then the Jordan River continues and goes all the way down to the Dead Sea. The people of Israel even today are really not water people. You'll see some people swimming um, uh, and you'll, you'll see people living near the water. And a lot of fishing, a lot of fishing, but not, not as much as you would see in this community. Um, the water in that culture especially still carried a stigma that it had come from Banyas. It came out of that cave where children had died. It came out of the place where people had worshipped all these false gods. I mean, it was just a demonic environment up there. And as the water came down, it, it's nice and clear up here, but it's, it just kind of turns black with natural pollution and some human pollution and stuff like that. It, it really gets dark. And so, if you ever go to Israel and get baptized in the place we, we usually baptize people, the, you, you see the right picture. You'll see people literally disappearing. They, they disappear very quickly when they go under the water. Well, imagine, imagine if you were in a family and a loved one of yours was fishing out on the lake in a boat. One of those storms came up, boat tips over, he falls out, and he can't swim good because he's not a water person. Seriously. And he drowns. This is horrible. There's grief unspeakable the closer you get. I mean, the, the spouse, the, the children, the parents, you know, it's just that you know that grief. And, and all the friends are grieving. And so there's all that grief. But there's also this thing where some people, and they can't help it, they believe in the Lord their God with all their heart, all their mind, all their soul, all the time. But they still know the history of the water. And there's almost a sense that old, silly superstition that he died in enemy territory, that, that the devil reached up grabbed him by the ankle and pulled him down and he died there. And there's a, it's insane and they know it wasn't true, but they're still, they can't help it. Why did he die like that? What had he done so wrong? that Did he go to hell? I mean, there's just a thought, you know, and, and you put it out of your mind and you trust, the, you trust God's word, but that's what they dealt with. I'm just telling you about their culture, not mine. You remember Jesus finishes his ministry. He's crucified, he's raised from the dead. And just before his ascension, he gives out one instruction. I want you to go into all the world and make disciples. I want you to teach them everything I taught you. And I want you to baptize them. I want you to lower them down into enemy territory. Bring them up unharmed. I mean, that's, that's the thing about baptism. Hardly anybody ever dies in the actual ceremony. I mean, you're good. You've got a good record. All right, this church has never killed anybody in baptism. I'm just, I'm trying to sell baptism right now. And that'd be bad for business. But you know what I'm saying is, isn't that crazy? What, an, what a statement. It's almost like I was only nine when I was baptized here. I had no idea what I was signing up for. This is more like for adults. It was a good baptism. I, I mean, I believe in children getting baptized, baptized. But as an adult, have you really understood what you, what you signed up for? Because in a sense, 
You're being lowered down into this water to say to the devil, I am not afraid of you. As a matter of fact, my Lord said the gates of Hades would not prevail against me in whatever I'm doing. And I may be kind of scared. I may be a little timid. But the gates of Hades will not stand against me. You, devil, might want to be afraid of me. Because I'm going to change the world. I'm going to take this message everywhere. That's what baptism is about. I got a question. Have you ever been baptized as a believer? I, honor, I would honor your parents' faith if they, they took you as an infant and, and sprinkled you somewhere. Um, but did you know anything about that? Was that your decision? You know, Why not follow in what we call believer's baptism? Or maybe you've never even been sprinkled. Maybe for whatever reason you said, oh, that's for children or that's just to join the church. Listen, you may join the church in the process, but if you really understand what's going on here, this is much more than joining a church. My question is, if you've never been baptized by immersion, why not? What excuse will you give to the Lord when you meet Him one day? I mean, it's just a symbol. It's an important symbol. You know what that wedding ring is? It's a symbol. It's a symbol. If I take it off, I'm still married. If I take it off and lose it, I'm in trouble. It's an important symbol. Baptism is a very important symbol. And I'd, I'd like to invite you to make that commitment today. In fact, here's what I'd like you to do. I know, I know this church pretty well. In a minute, we're going to sing a song, it's, and it's going to be a response song. And what that means is everybody here is welcome to make a response. You might make it right where you are. Even as you sing, you might commit to the Lord something that, that he, you've been dealing with. That's, I would hope we all do that every time we gather together because it, it's, it's hard to live for the Lord. But what if you've never made that profession of faith? stepped out boldly in front of people and said, I've decided to follow Jesus. Or have you maybe said that to some folks, but you've never been baptized? Why don't you come forward today, tell your pastor, that's what I want to do, and we'll all celebrate. We're all cheering for you. We need you. So why not come? Today's your day. Let's pray. God, thank you for the time we're going to have here all, all week, really, and, and for the time we've had here this morning. I thank you for the land of the Bible. I thank you for the way it shows us so much. Um, God, thank you for letting us be alive in a day when archaeologists are bringing the land out of the dirt, bringing the, the evidence of the Bible out of the dirt. Thank you for letting us live in a day when airplanes can take us there or digital photography can bring all of that to us. You've given this to us as if we needed a little special push. And it, it is becoming more difficult to live in this culture for you. But I pray we'd all have the courage to do that. And I pray especially for that person who's, who says, you know what? It's time for me to get started and to follow in believer's baptism. We love you. We trust you. We're completely committed to you today. We love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. Help us to do it all of the time. We pray in Jesus' name. If you would like to know more about following Jesus and what it looks like in the real world, we would love to talk with you about it. You can find our contact information on our website at fbcamericas.org. And stay tuned for the second section of the Experience Israel Now Conference.